Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Unjustly. My name is Stephanie, and this is my co-host, Sandy. Hey, everyone. So today's story comes from Canada. I love Canada. I've never been to Canada, but I love it. I love oh, people you love that come from Canada. They're, They're so nice. nice. They're yeah. so nice. We've been to Montreal and Quebec City. That, I think, was hands down one of our favorite trips that we've ever gone to. Yeah, Tim and I were supposed to. We were so close. We almost did it. We um, were going on a Disney cruise when oh. at the start of the pandemic. So I uh-huh. think it was supposed to take off in early April. So like literally right when everything that happened. Sucks. And so eventually they canceled it, obviously. But yeah. they gave us a credit and... Our hope is that with the credit, we are going to take a Disney cruise, but an extended Disney cruise. The first, the one we were supposed to take was just a short one Mm -hmm. to Ensenada. But this one, the one that we want to take, starts up in, I think it's Vancouver. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then works its way back down to San Diego. So we hope to take a couple days, like be up there a couple days before the cruise takes (gasps) off and then like take the cruise down. Tell me what days you go and we might meet you there. I mean, obviously, depending on how everything looks, but they the that one I think is only in September. Mm. So if everything is back open by September, then mm-hmm. hopefully mm-hmm. we would be on that one. Otherwise, I don't know what we'd be able to do. Yeah, if we can take it like the following. September. Oh, and Canada is super shut down to everybody. Yeah, even if so, you wanted to go, we don't know. Oh, but Canada. that's our hope, Canada. So um, this story is um, the unfortunate wrongful conviction and murder of a little girl by the name of Christine Jessup. And the man who was convicted for her murder, his name is Guy Paul Morin. But in the videos I saw, mm-hmm. they pronounce his name Guy. Oh, okay. So I, 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 I don't know it's if like it's French like a, or something. Because it could in Canada. be. Yeah, so I'm going to call him Guy, but it's spelled Guy. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so um, she was only nine years old when she was kidnapped, brutally assaulted, and killed. Her name, again, was Christine Jessup, and the story of Christine is like too many such cases, a crime of opportunity committed with a heartless execution and utter disregard for the agony it would cause so many other people. The tragedy itself would engulf not one but two families and ultimately entangle authorities and the justice system itself in controversy. So today's sources come from an article by Eric Sorensen, report of the Kaufman Commission on Proceedings Involving Guy Paul Morin, Ministry of the Attorney General, and an article on Global News by Jessica Patton, as well as, of course, Wikipedia. Christine was a bright-eyed girl growing up in Queensville, Ontario, a quiet little town north of Toronto. She liked baseball and riding her bike, and she loved her pet beagle named Freckles. Mm. His name is Freckles. That's such a good name. Yeah, it is. And she dreamed of one day becoming a veterinarian. One Wednesday afternoon in October of 1984, she planned to meet a friend after school. She took the school bus home, but instead of heading straight to her friend's house, she went home, dropped off her bag, and was never seen or heard from again. It was believed that it was only a few minutes later that her mother, Janet, and older brother, Ken, returned home from a dental appointment. They looked around for Christine and called her friends, but no one had seen or heard from Christine. It was then that her mother, Janet, began to feel a sense of dread and decided to call the police. She remembers thinking, you know something in the back of your mind when you can't find them right away. You know something's not right. Which That's I feel like everybody has that like worst nightmare. Mm-hmm. The next day, a massive hunt was underway. 
it seemed like the entire town had come out to scour Queensville and the fields surrounding it. What searchers couldn't know then was that Christine was no longer nearby. And it was almost three months later, on New Year's Eve, that Christine's body was found on a rural road more than 30 miles away from her home. Her body was found on its back, with her knees spread apart in an unnatural position, and an autopsy would later determine that she had been stabbed in the chest several times and that these were the cause of death. Additionally, the presence of semen on her underwear suggested that she had been sexually assaulted. The state of decomposition suggested that her death had occurred three months before its (gasps) discovery. Oh, man. So basically, she was kidnapped, Mm -hmm. raped, murdered, Mm -hmm. and then left there. And they didn't find her for three months. baby. The location where Christine's body was found meant that it fell to the Durham Regional Police to investigate. So since it was outside of her mm-hmm. her actual city, it was it was a, they, someone else's jurisdiction. Someone else's jurisdiction, yeah. They weren't having much luck at first, but a few weeks later, Janet Jessup mentioned her neighbor, Guy Paul Morin, and told police he was a quote weird type of guy. Morin lived with his parents right next door to the Jessups. He was 24 years old and worked as a furniture sander and played clarinet in the community band. He didn't know Christine or her family very well, but police interviewed him and surreptitiously collected a hair sample from him. A forensic specialist deemed that hair microscopically similar to a hair found in the necklace on Christine's body. So similar, but not exact match or no, she just examined Yeah, like she examined it, looked at it and said, yeah, that's pretty, pretty much the same. Pretty similar. Okay. Yeah. Police suspicions grew, so they had the FBI construct a profile of the killer that was to police a description that perfectly fit Morin. With that and other evidence, Morin was arrested, and although Guy maintained his innocence, he was put on trial for murder in January of 1986. In a London, Ontario courtroom, the Crown... I like that they have a crown. <laughs> the Crown brought forward hair evidence and fibers found on Christine's clothing. Prosecutors constructed a timeline that would have given Morin the opportunity to kidnap Christine after he got off of work, but before Janet Jessup got home. The prosecution also presented stunning testimony from two cellmates who swore Morin had confessed to the crime while he had been in custody. An undercover police officer told the court that Morin, while in jail, had claimed to red rum the innocent. And as we know, red rum is murder spelled backwards. So there's that. (laughs) Is that common for them to say? What? The red rum? Red rum? Oh, you don't know what that... You've never heard of it? No. It's in The Shining, I believe. Oh. And they write like red rum, red rum, red right, rum. Right, right, right. And it's just... It's literally just murder spelled backwards. Mm-hmm. And there's this like stigma of like, ooh, red rum. But they like... So they had an undercover police officer like in the cell or like around him and he claimed that he had told him that Morin had told him out of the blue or just in conversation, red rum the innocent, which like that's so random. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, A, like, why would anyone say that? But B, like, what conversation were you having with him <laughs> that he just said, yeah, red rum the innocent? You know, like yeah. it was just really weird. But they had that and these two jailhouse informants saying that he had confessed, mm-hmm. plus this hair that was microscopically similar Mm -hmm. not a match just similar and so with that they went to court okay morin's defense lawyer clayton ruby challenged the credibility of the jailhouse informants and called in experts who disputed the forensic evidence and maintained that morin simply did not have the time to kidnap christine because he had gotten groceries after work 
The precise time of Janet and Ken's arrival home was a major issue because it was said that Guy had left work at 3.32 p.m. the afternoon of the kidnapping and arrived at his home no sooner than 4.14. So based on where he had been, the groceries and all of that, mm-hmm. they estimated that there was no way he would have been home before 4.14. Okay. The Jessup's time of return had a huge impact on the window of opportunity for Morin to have committed the crime. Morin was also able to provide evidence to prove that he had arrived at his home well after the Jessups and therefore had no opportunity to abduct Christine. Ruby also said something that caught many by surprise. He introduced psychiatric evidence that showed that his client was schizophrenic, and it was his way of explaining some of the unusual ways Morin spoke, including that expression of red rum the innocent. In the end, Ruby told the jury there simply wasn't convincing evidence to convict his client, and almost two years after police first interviewed Morin, the jury found him not guilty. Oh, okay. So, that's good. Mm-hmm. It was a crushing verdict for the Jessups, and it was a major letdown for police and prosecutors as well. If anything, the unchallenged evidence that Morin was schizophrenic only seemed to confirm their belief that Morin was the right suspect and that the jury had got it wrong. The Crown appealed the verdict, and the Ontario Court of Appeal found fault in the trial judge's instructions to the jury, and so a new trial was ordered. It gave the Jessups new hope for justice, but for Morin, it meant his ordeal was not yet over. At Morin's second trial, much of the same evidence was produced. The hair and fibers, the alleged jail cell confession, the timeline giving Morin the opportunity to take Christine. But Morin's lawyer this time, a man by the name of Jack Pinkofsky, like Ruby before him, countered and questioned all of that evidence. By this time, the jury found Morin guilty. Stunned, Morin blurted out in court, I am not guilty of this crime. And his lawyer stated, today an innocent man was found guilty. So nothing new had really been presented. Mm -hmm. It was just this time the jury happened to find him guilty. From the same evidence. From the same evidence. Nothing Nothing new was presented on both sides, obviously. Why are they allowed to try something twice? I don't know. It's something to do with their, they appealed the the verdict, basically. Okay. And yet, almost eight years after their daughter disappeared, the justice believed this verdict had brought justice at long last. Two trials, two different verdicts, but the ordeal was not over because it was now Morin's defenders who would seek an appeal. But before this could happen, a new and extraordinary piece of evidence would turn this case upside down one final time. A tiny bit of DNA from Christine's clothing changed everything. The science of DNA testing had not been available when Christine's body was found in 1984, but a decade later, a sample could finally be extracted that proved Morin was not the killer. His conviction was overturned, and Morin was freed. It was an incredible moment in Canadian judicial history because it was clear that something in the criminal justice system had gone terribly wrong. Mm -hmm. Morin had spent close to two years in prison and lived for 10 years through legal uncertainty and the stigma of a terrible crime he had not committed. The Ontario government called for a major public inquiry, and Justice Fred Kaufman posed this essential question at the inquiry's open. How and why did the administration of justice fail in this instance, and how can such a failure be prevented in the future? The inquiry would last 10 months, and 120 witnesses were called, which included detectives, prosecutors, forensic specialists, the jailhouse informants, as well as the Jessups, Janet, and Christine's brother, Ken. Now, you'll notice that... The father is kind of absent in all of this. Okay. That was because at this time he was in jail. Oh. So um, we'll talk about it later, but the Jessups believed that it was someone who knew them who had committed this crime mm-hmm. because 
that day that she was abducted, kidnapped, murdered, they were planning on going to visit Christine's father in jail. Okay. But she wasn't going to be going with them. So it really, really thought that this was a crime of opportunity. Someone knew she would be alone Mm -hmm. and that they wouldn't be there. And so they kind of had this feeling that whoever it was was someone who Mm -hmm. knew them intimately or at least well enough to know she would be there by herself. Yeah. I really like that they did an inquiry into this whole issue on their own why aren't we doing that with our cases i don't know i I love that they did that so at this point the jessups had come full circle and no longer believed that their neighbor guy Mm -hmm. was guilty and so they too wanted answers from the justice system which is really nice that you're able Mm -hmm. to kind of like set yourself apart and be like wait something's just not adding up here you know like there's there's something else going on One critical piece of information was the time that Janet and Ken arrived home the day of Christine's disappearance. They had initially told police that they had arrived at 4.10, and based on this information, police had determined that Morin could not have gotten home from work until 4.15 or 4.14, so they suggested to the Jessups that they must have gotten home later, so both Janet and Ken changed their time, Mm -hmm. thus preserving the police theory that Morin had the opportunity to take Christine But Janet remembers thinking that they had, in fact, gotten home at 410. But she told the inquiry, you're believing the police and authorities. You're told this for so many years that, well, maybe you were wrong. They are professionals. Mm -hmm. And that's what we see happening time and Mm -hmm. time again. I feel like police have such the um, authority. Like, yeah, police have so much ability to impose their ideas on people. Mm -hmm. And like you said, they have this authority to them. And you're just like, well, they must know more than me. Like, this is their job. This is what they've been doing day in, day Mm -hmm. out. Like, they have to know more than what I'm giving. And so people always change their stories to match what the police keep telling them. And they're like, they start believing that that's right. Right. Uh Like, she kind of had this in the back of her mind this whole time like i'm pretty sure i got there at 410 but, but they're telling me they're no, telling so. me no and like this guy is kind of weird and so you know like and you want to make sense of things and so you start to believe what you're being told even mm-hmm. though there's something in you that's just telling you that this just not right and that's how false confessions happen too mm-hmm. Kaufman was very critical of police interviewing techniques as well as how they collected evidence. He determined that the hair and fiber evidence were given too much weight and that there was a need for objectivity in scientific testing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Of course. When Christine's body was discovered, a single dark hair was found embedded in skin tissue adhering to her necklace. This would become known as the necklace hair. The hair was not Christine's and was presumed to have come from the killer. After Guy Paul Morin's first trial and before his second, an analysis of hairs belonging to Christine Jessup's classmates revealed that two classmates had hairs which were also microscopically similar. (laughs) There were also three hairs found in Morin's car that were dissimilar to Morin's hair, and it was said that these were similar to Christine's hair and therefore would have come from her. Mm -hmm. The inquiry, however, found that the hair comparison evidence had little or no probative value in proving Morin's guilt. The hair comparison evidence, which was absent of DNA analysis, was unlikely to have sufficient probative value to justify its reception as circumstantial evidence of guilt at a criminal trial. So it really was just like they took the hair, they looked at it in a microscope and was like, oh, yeah, they look similar, which we we know that this happened so much in the 80s, even like early 90s when we're watching like forensic files. You see them and they're like looking at their microscope and you're like, oh, yeah, like 
the end of that hair looks like the end of this yeah. one and the strands and all of that. And so it's not hard to, to like see that something like this would happen. It's just kind of crazy that they took this and ran with it as mm-hmm. actual to convict scientific people. evidence to convict someone. It was found that prior to Guy's arrest, Ms. Nisnik, the forensic scientist for the Center of Forensic Scientists, who happened to testify at both trials, conducted a hasty preliminary comparison of the necklace, hair, and Guy's hair in the investigator's presence. She communicated a preliminary opinion to the officers that was overstated and, to her knowledge, left the officers with the understanding that the comparison yielded important evidence implicating Mr. Morin. Had the limitations on her early findings been adequately communicated by her, Mr. Morin may have never been arrested when he was, if ever. So she just did a really bad job of explaining, like, this is what I'm seeing, Mm -hmm. but it's actually not concrete evidence. And so the police then ran with it mm-hmm. because they're being told by this forensic expert, like this, they yes, match. This, is, this is a match. So they're like, cool, this is 100% correct. Right. Mm-hmm. The inquiry also looked at fibers collected from the taping of Christine Jessup's clothing and her recorder bag that was found at the body site. They also looked at fibers from the taping and vacuuming of the Morin Honda and from tapings of the Morin residence. Thousands of fibers, perhaps hundreds of thousands, were examined and several became significant for Ms. Nisnik and Mr. Erickson, her teammate from the CFS. And they testified that several of the fibers from the Morin-related locations were similar and could have come from the same source as several of the fibers found at the body site. So again, they were similar and could have come. Mm -hmm. But again, they're they're just fibers. Yeah. And at that time, I mean, it's crazy to think because houses built at the same time or within a couple of years, typically look very similar because mm-hmm. there's very like popular trends or like colors are the same. So you're going to see a lot of the same things and mm-hmm. a lot of this like the houses that were in the area. So I, I can totally understand why some of them would look similar and could have come from the same fibers, but it doesn't mean that they did. Mm-hmm. And it definitely shouldn't be presented as evidence of fact. Yeah. There is, oh man, I can't even remember. It, it was some crime show that was talking about a case and Again, they were looking at the fibers. There's like this orange fiber. Mm-hmm. Do you know which one I'm I talking think so. about? I think it's a Forensic Files episode. Maybe. And it just so happens um, the room of the person they thought was the killer had the exact mm-hmm. same carpet as in the victim, in the victim's house. Yep. And they never made that connection until like way later. And they're like, oops. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you guys just had the same carpet. It wasn't actually right. from her carpet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Obviously, the commissioner found that the similarities, even if they all existed, proved nothing. Additionally, the fiber evidence was contaminated within the Center of Forensic Sciences. The timing and precise origin of the contamination cannot now be determined. It remains possible that this contamination tainted Ms. Nisnik's earliest findings, and no inferences can safely be drawn from any alleged fiber similarities given the existence of this in-house contamination. So not only are there no scientific backings Mm -hmm. that these are matches, but there was an actual contamination within the center that was never, like, taken into consideration. They never told the cops. They never told anyone. Yeah. The contamination was known to both Miss Nisnik and her partner, Mr. Erickson, prior to the first trial, but was withheld from the police, the prosecution, the defense, and the court. This may have been done to avoid embarrassment to themselves and to the CFS, 
but they claim it was not done out of personal malice toward Guy or with any desire to convict an innocent person. They believed, rightly or wrongly, that the contamination was unrelated to the original findings, but this afforded them no excuse. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what you think. Like, you need to let people know if there's been a contamination with evidence that's being presented in court. Yeah. Right? Like, this is crazy. And I feel like that happens often, too. There's contamination and it doesn't get talked about or brought up until a long time after or never. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that comes with that ego thing? Where I it's think like, so. No, like, you don't want to be no embarrassed or because then, okay, like, say you admit it. Oh, you know, like there is contamination or this piece of evidence was contaminated. You're now like having this like looming thing around your center, around mm-hmm. you that like, well, has everything been contaminated? Yeah. Like, are other things going on? And so then it kind of like devalues your findings your credibility so it's like well let's just assume it just happened this one time and let's just not say anything and we'll just make sure moving forward we don't have those issues but like that's just not how it works (laughs) sadly there had been no real interest in documenting the contamination how it had occurred whether it had affected other cases within the center and how it might be prevented in the future Indeed, Ms. Nisnik declined to retain any documentary record of the contamination in her file. The commissioner also reflected the fact that original evidence was lost at the CFS between the first and second trials. Lastly, he noted that certain terms such as match and consistent with were used unevenly and were potentially misleading. The use of these terms contributed to the misunderstanding of the forensic findings. Lastly, the inquiry examined issues arising from a confession to the murder of Christine Jessup allegedly made by Guy Paul Morin to Robert Dean May and a fellow inmate that we're going to refer to as Mr. X because his name has been hidden from records. Yeah. May had a substantial criminal record for crimes of dishonesty. He admitted that he had a problem with lying in the past and that he had lied to the police and correctional authorities. He wanted badly to be released from jail in 1985 and would do whatever was necessary to accomplish this. Mm-hmm. And he offered to implicate other inmates as well as Mr. X. May was diagnosed by mental health experts at the second trial as a pathological liar. He had a deficient social mm-hmm. conscience and was skilled in deceiving others. It was after the second trial that May recanted his trial evidence. He told a number of people that he had lied about having heard Mr. Morin confess and that he had committed perjury at the trials. He attempted to recant his recantations and took the (laughs) position that this evidence at the trial about the purported confession was indeed true. The commissioner, however, found that he had spun a web of confusion and deceit about the issue of the confession. So, like, no one knew what to believe because it was like, no, I'm just kidding. I didn't mean it. And then, no, I'm just kidding. I did mean it. Like, there's just... And then also just the fact that he was diagnosed with being a pathological liar. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't really put too much on what he says. And if he admitted that he's doing a lot of the things that he's doing so that he can be released like and that's the issue with getting testimony from people that are currently in prison as snitch testimony they could be lying to get things Mm -hmm. and they usually do get things out of it right (laughs) most of the time it works yeah i think really you can only use that evidence if they're not going to get anything out of it at all Mm -hmm. mr x had a lengthy criminal record for sexual offenses particularly for offenses against young children He was diagnosed in 1988 as having a personality disorder with sociopathic tendencies. And at the second trial of Mr. Morin, an expert testified that this is characterized by exaggeration, lying, suggestibility, and disregard for social norms. 
Mr. X agreed that he had lied to the police and correctional authorities in the past and told the inquiry that at times he apparently lost contact with reality. He heard voices in his head, which sometimes were so loud that he thought his head was going to explode. He explained his history of sexual misconduct by the fact that he heard the voice of his uncle telling him to commit the illegal acts. Oh, okay. Mr. X also bargained with the police for his information about Morin's purported confession. In June of 1985, he was desperate to get out of the Whitby jail and into the temporary absence program that he told the police he would give them anything they wanted if they got him into a halfway house. After the first trial, he was convicted of another sexual assault, and the commissioner found that Mr. X was an untrustworthy person whose testimony could not be accepted on any of the issues before the inquiry. I think I'm starting to like Canada's criminal justice system. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are doing something right. We have Mm -hmm. listeners in Canada, so hit us up and let us know how it's going for you guys. But we also understand that there's not, that they're not perfect. No, no one is. With the indigenous populations in Canada. That is true. So there's a lot of good, but there's also still a lot of work to be done. Are they getting better? Like, are they progressive in that way? I feel like Justin Trudeau's seems to be progressive. I think that the issues are at the forefront, which is good because I think for a long time, it just was never addressed. Mm -hmm. And I think they're getting a lot of light now, which is really good. But I think it's going to take time for us to really know whether or not true changes are taking place. Mm -hmm. Both May and Mr. X claimed that they reported the confession and gave their evidence because they were morally outraged at the crime committed by Morin. The commissioner rejected that motivation and found that they were both seeking to further their own ends when they reported the confession and testified. The commissioner accepted Guy Paul Morin's evidence that he did not confess to Mr. May and concluded that the testimony of the jailhouse informants was patently unreliable and that tunnel vision affected police and prosecutors, a concept that was defined as an overly narrow focus on a particular theory. Kirk Macon, the author of Red Rum the Innocent, a book that studied the Morin case in exhaustive detail, felt that police investigators may have gotten too close to the Jessups. They became like family members, and that drove, I think, a lot of what went wrong in the case. Macon believes the original police investigators were inexperienced and under a great deal of pressure to solve the crime, so they zeroed in on Morin. We ended up with what you see classically in wrongful convictions, which is tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. At the inquiry, one police investigator apologized to Morin, and one of the prosecutors, Susan McLean, tearfully testified that she was not proud in having been involved in the prosecution of someone who's innocent. It was now the summer of 1997, and the chief of the Durham Regional Police, Trevor McCaggerty, offered Morin a full and unequivocal, unconditional apology for our mistakes, which led to his wrongful conviction. Kaufman concluded that what occurred were serious errors in judgment, often resulting from a lack of objectivity rather than outright malevolence. They're so nice over there. Like, they think the best of everyone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Kaufman also said, The case was not unique. Indeed, Morin's exoneration had followed recent revelations of the wrongful convictions of Donald Marshall in Nova Scotia and David Milgard in Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. Our favorite um, band is from there, the Dead South. Also, Milgard, though, actually know him. He started following us on social media, so I've been... Leave this case alone because I may be covering it later. (laughs) Well, then I can hook you up with talking to him. Or you can do Milgard and I'll do Marshall. (laughs) 
Together, the three M's, Milgard, Marshall, and Warren, inspired the creation of an organization known today as Innocence Canada, which investigates possible wrongful convictions in Canada, which was just one change that came about after the inquiry. James Lockyer, a key figure in the group and a lawyer for Morin, says that from that point forward, the justice system no longer relied as much on jailhouse informants. He said new measures were implemented to ensure forensic evidence would be more properly assessed. Thank God. Good. <laughs> what we call junk science in the business is far less likely these days, he says. And one of the inquiry's key recommendations appears to be coming about 25 years later. The federal government has announced that it will set up an independent tribunal to review claims of wrongful convictions. Macon, the author, is now with the Innocence Canada and welcomes the review panel. There are still wrongful convictions out there, he says. The ingredients are always there for wrongful convictions, which is so true. Absolutely. Morin knows this only too well. He accepted the apologies from police and others, as well as a settlement for more than $1 million from the province of Ontario to his family. He got married, had two sons, and has largely stayed out of the public eye ever mm. since. For police, the years-long focus on Morin means the trial for the real killer of Christine Jessup long ago went cold. Hundreds of tips, interviews, and DNA samples had been checked out, but so much was lost over the years, including evidence from witnesses. A one-time member of the Toronto Police Cold Case Unit, Stacey Gallant, acknowledged, There's memories that you can't bring back 20, 30, 40 years later. But she says that one thing that could help all these years later is DNA. The same evidence that cleared Morin still exists to identify the killer. Police have expanded the search recently to include Ancestry websites. I love this so much. And this is one of the reasons why I submitted my DNA to one of them. <laughs> <laughs> A family member of the killer might have tested his or her DNA. We could get lucky and follow that family line and identify who the person responsible is, alive or dead. And finding the person who killed her daughter is all that Janet Jessup wanted more than 35 years later. Mm. The hardest lesson from all of this is that a case that commanded untold legal resources for more than a decade still came up empty. The case had never been solved and the justice system has learned from its mistakes. But at that time, they were still in pain, searching mm -hmm. for Christine's killer. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there because on October 15th of 2020, police officials announced that using a new technique for tracing criminals through the DNA of their relatives, they had found the person responsible for Christine's murder. Mm -hmm. It was a man by the name of Calvin Hoover. Kenny Jessup, Christine's brother, told Global News that the family is feeling stunned, but happily stunned after hearing the news. He said that they are experiencing all seven stages of grief, which of course is only expected after all of these years. Yeah. Unfortunately, Calvin Hoover died by suicide a few Ugh. years ago and was a friend of the Jessup family. Hoover's wife was their father's co-worker and both Christine and Kenny would go to their house and play with their kids. No way. Yes. So they were right that it was someone, someone that they knew. Mm. Yep. Even 35 years later, you think about it every day. Was it this person? From day one, I truly believed it was someone who knew our family, who knew my dad was in jail and knew that we were going to visit him that day without Christine, Kenny said. The police state that what they did was start with an unidentified semen stain mm -hmm. that had a DNA profile to it and submitted to a lab. From that profile, they built out a potential familial line lineage, and it was from that lineage that investigators were able to work downwards to be able to try to identify potential persons of interest. 
The name Calvin Hoover was one of the names that came up in two specific families that they saw, and upon review of the investigative file, Hoover was a name they knew had a connection to the Jessup family. Oh my gosh. So while it was not a DNA match, it did provide a potential for family lineage for the police to work off of. The police chief stated that this case has impacted the entire judiciary and the legal system, including prosecutors, judges, and anyone involved in this process. And I can say we are all genuinely relieved that the person responsible has finally been identified. That's crazy. And that is a crazy story of Guy Paul Morin and Christine's, Christine Jessup and mm-hmm. the crazy s- struggle her family has been through these last 35 years, but also, you know, everything that thankfully seems the police system has learned from mm-hmm. everything that went wrong. It seems like they've learned from this. Mm-hmm. So it's a really incredible story. To learn more about Innocence Canada, you can visit innocencecanada.com. The Innocence Canada Foundation operates as a main fundraising organization for Innocence Canada and works to support the following charitable objects. They provide legal services to low-income persons in Canada for purposes of establishing that a wrongful conviction has occurred and exonerating that wrongfully convicted person. They're raising public awareness of the criminal law and the judicial processes, and they support educational initiatives that help to address the causes of wrongful convictions. So they're really doing a lot of great Mm-hmm. great work mm-hmm. um it is the only national non-governmental organization working to exonerate the wrongfully convicted if you'd like to donate to them um you can visit that same website but they also use your donations to um cover costs that include private investigators forensic testing expert opinions witness interviews court filing fees and expenses which you know very much about (laughs) travel costs to meet with the wrongfully convicted in prisons across Canada, transcripts of proceedings and travel related to investigation and cost of case management. So it's like they're really like taking on these cases and Mm -hmm. doing everything needed for them. So definitely if you are in Canada or are interested in helping the Innocence Canada Foundation, please go to their website and donate. That's amazing. Yeah. What I think is crazy, though, is going back to the case um, that it was a friend of the family. And I can I can only imagine that they probably still hung out with them even after she was murdered. How crazy is that? It's just so sad. That breaks my heart. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, he was a troubled person. He ended up dying by suicide. And I'm sure I would like to think that what he did kind of ate away at him all these years and just maybe just couldn't couldn't handle it and anymore. That it's just been what led to. It's also crazy that like his DNA hadn't been like in any system. It was through family lineage mm-hmm. that they ended up finding his name and realized that he was someone that lived close to close to them and so right. they started looking into it. So it seems like he pretty much kept a clean record and was never in trouble for anything. So had it non, not been because someone in his family had uploaded their DNA mm-hmm. to one of these websites, we very well may have never, never have. Known. Yeah. I want to know which website exactly, which Ancestry website is it that's um, contributing the DNA to um, the police, especially with like the Golden State Killer. And I know some people are trying to like stay away from that because they don't like the idea of the government having access to their DNA and like part of me gets it. But another part of me is like, no, I absolutely want to help. With cases, if I'm related some to someone that did something, like, let's take them down together. Well, thanks for taking us to Canada because yeah, I love Canada. We have listeners in Canada, so I'm sure they'll be excited for this one. Yeah, so 
I hope you guys enjoyed this. Obviously, it's tragic what happened to Christine, but it seems like some very good things came out of the wrongful conviction of Mr. Morin Mm -hmm. and, you know, Innocence Canada doing all of this incredible work. And, you know, the fact that they just took the inquiry and were like, we need to figure out what's going on and and how we can change things to make them better. Mm -hmm. You know, like Mm -hmm. that that's that's honorable. That's all we can all hope for. Right. But it's unfortunately not something that we see with too many of these cases is accountability on the government. I've never seen it. Yeah. And for them to do a whole inquiry, like a whole investigation on what went wrong. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Next week, we'll have another mini-sode. Hopefully you guys are enjoying those. Uh, Let us know what you think. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review and follow us on social media, Unjustly Podcast. Stay tuned. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. And yet I'll, uh, but a decade, but a decade, I can't say decade, decade, Nisnak, 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 I'm going to say Nisnak. To learn more about Innocence Canada, you can Venice, Venice. <laughs> to learn more, <laughs> no, I can't laugh. I will gladly mm. send my DNA to the government just on its own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just take this. Yeah. Take this and do whatever you, you want with it. <laughs> Like a swab. Catch someone, please. (laughs) It would make my day.